If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. It's in the Old Testament, and uh, there's no shame in using your table of contents if you need the help to find it. It's probably not a book you read very often, and if you're using one of the blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 372, 372, 2 Chronicles, chapter 20. And as you're turning there, uh, allow me just to set some context for what we're about to read. Our passage takes place about 800 years before Christ, and uh, a man named Jehoshaphat, uh, some say Jehoshaphat, some say Jehoshaphat, you can say either one, Uh, Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, and and throughout his life he makes some poor choices here and there, He, he has a knack for making bad alliances, but for the most part... When compared to other kings of Judah and Israel, Jehoshaphat is a very good king. He loves the Lord and he makes significant reforms to direct the nation of Judah back to the Lord. But here in chapter 20, he faces a mountain of an obstacle, one that he hasn't seen before. Three separate nations all plot against Judah at the same time. And as we read this morning, we'll see how uh, how the story unfolds. They're greatly outnumbered. So with that preface, uh, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We will read the first 30 verses. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, starting in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, They reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, 
all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them. And the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, and they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Baraka to this day. Then they returned. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. Let's all take a moment and be seated and meditate on his word.
for a moment, I want to fast forward in history from, uh, from ancient Judah to the year 1863 in the United States. At that time, the Civil War was only half over, and on average, 504 people died every day as a result of the war. And during that time, in 1863, the U.S. Senate made a resolution asking President Abraham Lincoln to proclaim a national day of prayer and fasting. And President Lincoln signed this resolution and fully endorsed it. And I want to read to you just a paragraph from Lincoln when he, uh, when he signed into, uh, into law, or when he signed this resolution of the day of prayer and fasting. This is President Lincoln. He writes, May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people? We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us, then, to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, in today's political landscape, it is absolutely jarring to even imagine a president talking like that. But he knew. Lincoln and the U.S. Senate knew that in this terrible civil war, their most powerful weapon, a weapon that could save lives, a weapon that could bring peace, a weapon that could end the war, was not a gun nor a cannon. It was worship. Worship is a weapon. That's what we see in our text in Second Chronicles 20 this morning, and that's what I've titled this sermon. Uh, so remember, in our text, the nation of Judah is surrounded by three enemies, and Jehoshaphat responds like Abraham Lincoln. He proclaims a, a national day of, of prayer and fasting. But notice this. The, the, the people of Judah didn't stay in their individual homes to pray and fast and worship. But what did they do? What did God's people do when under threat? They came to church. They came and assembled together for worship. Verse 4 and verse 5 both talk about how Judah assembled at the temple in Jerusalem. And that word assembly, you probably read right over it, but that word assembly is a, is a very important word. In the Hebrew, the word for assembly is, is this word kahal, and, and that's a word that's later translated into the Greek as koinonia, 
you don't have to remember these exact words, but just follow me. Kahal, translated into Greek, is koinonia, which is the same word that the New Testament uses that we translate as church. Church means assembly, the assembled people of God. In a time of crisis, the people of God gather and worship corporately. They gather and worship together as a body. And in our passage, we see three major elements of worship. And that that will be our outline for this morning. So just so you know where I'm going, um, first, we see prayer. Second, we see preaching. And third, we see praise. But first is prayer. In verses 6 through 13, Jehoshaphat prays a, a public pastoral prayer. And this prayer has many things that are worthy of imitation in our own prayer lives. Not just as pastors, but as people of God. And I, w- I want to walk through some of those for you, uh, with you. There is adoration. There is, there is love for God in this prayer. Notice that Jehoshaphat is not so consumed with his own circumstances that he forgets who God is. He remembers who God is and worships him even in the midst of a national crisis. In verse 6, he adores God for his attributes. He says, God, you're in heaven. You rule over all kingdoms. In your hand are power and might. In verse 7, he adores God for his promises. He's saying, God, you've given us the promised land, just as you said. And you said it would belong forever to the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel and Judah. Jehoshaphat's prayer is full of adoration. But don't miss this. Not only is there adoration, there's also an argument. Jehoshaphat is is making an argument with God. And by this, I mean Jehoshaphat gives God reasons why God should answer his prayer. Not argument in the sense of screaming at somebody, but argument in the sense of a lawyer making his case. Lord, this is why you should answer us. And he does this with a series of rhetorical questions. Look again at verse 6. He uses God's attributes as an argument. Are you not God in heaven? Are you not all-powerful? In verse 7, he uses God's promises as an argument. Did you not promise that this would be our land? In verses 10 and 11, he uses God's reputation as an argument. He's saying, Lord, you had mercy on these nations earlier because we didn't destroy them. And now they're coming back to destroy us. God, are you going to let them take advantage of you like that? And in verse 12, he uses their own weakness as a plea for compassion. He he says, we're powerless. God, we lose unless you intervene. I wonder if this idea of arguing with God in your prayers makes you uncomfortable. Do you refrain from giving God reasons why he should answer you? If you look at the prayers of Scripture, they are filled with arguments, and this is a good thing. You know, occasionally you'll, you'll read a book or an article on prayer that really challenges your entire perspective on prayer. And for me, it's a little book by Charles Spurgeon, maybe 100, 150 pages, pretty easy to read, but it's called The Power in Prayer. And you should read it, especially his chapter on argument. He, he asks, why should arguments be used at all? Well, it's not because God needs to be informed, right? 
It's not like God's like, well, if you could just give me a good reason. No, it's not that God needs to know. But using arguments is for our own good. It reveals to us the condition of our heart and what our motivation is in prayer. An easy example would be, for example, God, would you give me improved finances? Why? Because I deserve it. Well, no, that prayer will never succeed. And that very argument reveals your own self-righteousness and idolatry. But compare that to God. Money is tight right now, and I'm struggling to take care of my family. You promised to give us our daily bread, and, and right now it's looking like we need more. Would you be gracious to us and give out of your generosity? See, the, the request is the same, but the argument is totally different. That's a much better argument, and you can pray that with a clear conscience, right? Because your argument isn't based off of what you've done or what you will do, but based off of God's character and his promises, Like Jehoshaphat, we should think through our arguments and give God reasons why he should answer us. To paraphrase Spurgeon in his book, I love this quote. He says, using God's promises, attributes, reputation, and even our own unworthiness as arguments is like taking a great battering ram to the gates of heaven. That's so Spurgeon. That's a great picture. And, and I, I must admit, personally, when I try to apply this, this principle of argument to my own prayer life, it's very hard. It, it, it makes me pray much slower. Because I have to really think through each item, and I really have to check my heart and what my motivations are. It, it, it will prevent you from going through prayer like a grocery list. But that's a good thing, because that's when prayer becomes deeper. Jehoshaphat's prayer gives God adoration, argument, and also his attention. His attention. Look at verse 12. He says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know if that verse rhymed in Hebrew, but it does rhyme in English, and it's very helpful. What a one-liner. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This only happens when you arrive at the end of yourself. For me... When I don't know what to do, my eyes are usually on me or Google because I'm trying to control the situation or, or figure it all out. But to keep our eyes on God reminds us that we're in a story that's so much bigger than ourselves. That God is so much, so much bigger than us. He cares for us, but, but everything that's going on in the world and, and this, this redemptive story that we're all a part of is so much bigger than just us. It, it, it brings us, keeping our eyes on God brings us out of the pit of our own circumstances. It gets us out of our own head. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This, that is a God-centered prayer. Have you ever prayed, and by the end of your prayer, you, you felt more anxious than you did before you prayed? H- have you ever wondered why that is? I know I have. Another book on prayer I've read recently is uh, after Tim Keller died. I decided to read his book on prayer, and it's, it's incredible. You should read it. And he talks about this. What, what is it about prayer that sometimes makes you more anxious? Keller says, and I think he's right, when that happens, usually it's a sign 
that our prayers are focused too much on us and too little on God. It becomes less of a conversation with the God of the universe and more of just a rehearsal of our own problems, forgetting who God is. Self-focused prayer leads to anxiety, but God-centered prayer leads to peace and worship, even in the middle of a storm. So first, there is prayer. Second, there is preaching. After Jehoshaphat prays, there is preaching, and the preaching comes in the form of prophecy. In verse 14, there's a Levite named Jehaziel who gets a word from the Lord and proclaims the word of the Lord to the congregation. He gives them, in a sense, the gospel. In verse 15, the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. That is a perfect description of what grace is. It's not the battle that we fight to get to God. It's, it's the battle that God fights for us to save us. This is the same exact promise, almost down to the exact wording that God spoke through Moses before they crossed the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And for us, this is what Christ has done for every Christian. Now, I don't want to disappoint anyone this morning, but I'm not a prophet. I don't have a fresh new revelation from God like Jehaziel did. And in fact, I can guarantee you I never will. But we have something better. We have the revealed, written, and preserved word of God readily available to read anytime we need it. We don't have to wait for a new revelation. We have God's finished and complete and preserved and perfect revelation for us. We have the Bible. Even though it was written long ago, the Bible still, it still speaks prophetically into our life today. It has relevancy for us. So that even as we read a story from Second Chronicles from almost 3,000 years ago, God is still speaking through that word to us today. That's why Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What that means is that whenever we open God's word, we should be even more excited than if a prophet of the Lord was standing right before us, speaking to us the word of the Lord. This is not merely man's word. It is God's word. And you can be sure that in our passage, God's people were hanging on every word out of the mouth of the prophet. Because they knew they needed God's word for their survival. Their, their posture as they came to worship was, was, I need a word from God or we're not going to make it. Is that our posture as we come to worship? Is that our posture as we approach the reading of God's word in our private worship or the, the hearing of God's word in public worship? Lord, I need, I need your word this morning or I'm not going to make it. We should come with great expectancy to the preaching of God's word. God is doing something when his word is being preached. And, and you know that part of, you may have heard, part of my story is that I was raised in a church. But, but I'd never experienced a church that had really treasured and valued God's word as it should until I showed up at Christ Community Church as a freshman in college. 
And it was clear from day one that whoever was in this pulpit, whether it was Paul, any other pastor, any other elder, whoever stood in this pulpit was dedicated to proclaiming not their own word, but God's word. In preaching, only one man is speaking. But we, see, but we can infer from this passage that the congregation is not passive. God isn't calling us as listeners, to just sit back and, and relax and enjoy ourselves. But we're, there's a response that we have to make as God's people. In verse 20, Jehoshaphat exhorts the people to believe. He says, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. The invitation is to believe. That's the response we're invited to make. Do you believe this morning? The people of God were, were told to believe that the battle was not theirs, but God's. You could say the people in this passage were told to believe that their salvation was going to be by grace alone through faith alone. As New Testament Christians, our message is the same theme. But it's an even greater reality. We're in a war. We're in a battle against our own sin that we could never possibly win. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son to win that victory for us. He died in our place on the cross. He rose again in our place in the resurrection so that all we have to do is believe in the victory is ours. We have eternal life. Not the victory that we fought for, but the victory that God himself, that Jesus Christ fought for for us. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Worship is a weapon, and that weapon consists of prayer, preaching, and finally, praise. Praise. Jehaziel's prophecy has ended, and the promises haven't come true yet. There, there's, still, there's still the crisis going on. All they've, all they've done is heard a sermon. But those promises are enough reason to praise God in the meantime. Their life is threatened, but they have a promise, and they're going to praise. In verse 18, we see their worship is reverent. They, they bow their heads to the ground. They treat God with respect and awe. But don't miss this. Their worship is reverent, but it's also loud. Verse 19, why was it loud? They didn't have speakers. They didn't have a, a, a sound guy in the back. It's safe to assume they had some instruments, but the loudest noise was the human voice. Verse 19 says, the singing was loud. Our worship should be reverent, but that doesn't mean we sing in a whisper. God loves loud singing. He's saved us to be a singing people. In fact, he dedicated an entire book of the Bible to song. In fact, the words that they sing in verse 21 providentially are the same passage that Trevor read for, for, for us this morning from Psalm 136. We didn't plan that. They sing Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Is that a puzzling song choice to you? Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Why should I thank God at a time like this? 
gives you the reason for, which means because his steadfast love endures forever. The Hebrew word is hesed, his steadfast love. That's God's special covenant love that he has for his people and his people alone. It's his special covenant love that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. Why should I praise God in the middle of a crisis? Because he's made a covenant with you and he's never going to break it. That is more than enough reason to praise. And now we arrive at the climax of our story. I would love to see this depicted in a movie scene, but I know that even the best directors out there couldn't do it justice. Verse 22, and when they began to sing and praise, and when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. When they began to sing, God began to act. We don't know exactly how this all happened, but it appears in verse 23 that, remember, there's three nations coming against Judah. And God made it so to where two of the nations decided to destroy the third nation. And then after that, the two nations destroyed each other. It's like the end of a mobster movie where everybody turns on each other and everybody dies. And there's really some humor here because in verse 24, Judah gets done singing. And they're like, all right, let's go see what's going to happen. They go to the watchtower and behold, everyone's already dead. And there's so much stuff laying on the ground, it takes them three days to collect all the spoil. And then when, when they get all this new riches, what do they do? They, they go back home and enjoy their new toys. No, that's not what they do. They praise God again. So much so that they rename this place the Valley of Baraka, which means the Valley of Blessing. And I just think, how often do I refuse or forget to praise God after he's answered my prayers? Even some of the biggest ones. But they don't, here Judah doesn't do that. They keep the praise going. Worship is a weapon. And we need to understand this rightly. Worship is not like rubbing a genie's bottle. It's not twisting God's arm. But there's something about worship that invokes God to act on our behalf. I found an article from Christianity Today that really ties this theme together and, 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 and brings this, this theme together from multiple passages. Let me give you a few other examples of this from Scripture. You remember the fall of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6? What were God's people doing before the wall fell down? Seven days of blowing trumpets in worship. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts chapter 16, What were they doing before the earthquake caused their jail cell to open? They were praying and singing hymns. In Revelation 19, there's this cosmic battle and Christ appears on a white horse with the armies of heaven. And this this army is not angels, but is Christians. And do you know what we're wearing in Revelation chapter 19? We're not wearing battle armor. We're wearing white robes. We're dressed for worship. And worship attire. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. Well, how do we fight that? 
with worship. And before you get this us versus them type of war mentality, yes, the church is at war against the devil. Yes, the church is at war against evil forces in the world. But let's not forget, we're also at war against our flesh. Against our sin that remains in us. And in my opinion, that's the hardest one. If our sinful idols demand our worship, then worshiping the true God is one of the primary ways we kill our sin. Taking our mind off of what our sinful hearts think is beautiful and, and on to whom is, who is really beautiful, God himself. So here's the take-home truth for you to consider. Worship is not merely something that we should do. Like Paul said earlier, it's, it, worship is not merely this religious exercise that gives us points. Worship is not merely something we should do, but we need it. Worship is oxygen to our souls. We will not survive without it. Think of it this way. God is not an egomaniac for commanding us to worship him. It's, it's not about just him being obsessed with himself. No, it's worship is our greatest need. Therefore, it is loving for God to tell us to worship him. It's the prescription that will save our life. I don't know what you're going through this morning. But what God's telling us in his word is that the best thing that we can do in the meantime, no matter what storm we're in, is to worship him. Because that's what invokes God to fight our battles for us. He's good and he fights our battles by his grace. So this morning, remind yourself that the battle is not yours, but God's. Confess, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Your grace is sufficient for me, Lord. That's what worship is. We are in a war. And the church's battle plan is worship. So let's worship and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of worship. That in the midst of all of the mess, all of the distractions of life, you invite us to worship you, the creator of the universe and the savior of our souls. So God, even now as we sing one more song. God, would you fight our battles on our behalf by your grace? Would you set our eyes and our affections on you? Would you bring us out of the pit of our own circumstances? And Lord, give us, give us eyes for your glory. And would that comfort us and glorify you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.